Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, how Parkland shooting conspiracy theorists trolled 1,200 miles away and ended up in Brooklyn. Attorney General Schneiderman's fall from grace. Heroin injection sites. The global influence of gentrification in Brooklyn. And a former NFL player talks food justice. Hi and welcome to the show. I'm Ashley Ford here with my producer, Ross Tuttle. Hello, Ashley. What a night. New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman accused of beating up four women. He defends himself by saying, In the privacy of intimate relationships, I have engaged in role-playing and other consensual sexual activity. I have not assaulted anyone. I have never engaged in non-consensual sex, which is a line I would not cross. Did you, did you read that article in The New Yorker? I mean, what kind of role-playing is he talking about, like Game of Thrones? I mean, that's what it sounds like to me, like some Game of Thrones, uh, sexy, kinky, terrible, clearly wasn't okay with the woman situation. Right, and he said to one of them, or one of them reported that he called her his brown slave. Mm. Um, yeah. don't ever say those words again. Just kidding. <laughs> My bad. Is that, I mean, this is just. <laughs> I, uh, well, hey, um, duly noted, I will not utter those words in your presence or anyone else's. Um, Thank God. So he resigned. Mm-hmm. Um, pressure was on. Fast moving events. The good thing is that the office is greater than the man. Yes. And the hope is that the work will continue. Uh, it looks like the Manhattan DA is now opening up an investigation into Schneiderman's behavior, mm-hmm. which is a good thing. Yeah. Um, I think we shouldn't get distracted from the victims, but also hopefully the office will not be distracted from the work and the important work they're doing as being a bulwark against federal government. Here was one of the staunchest sort of um, individuals aligned against President Trump and his rapacious administration. We hope that that work will continue. I mean, of course it will. This is, I think, a really fantastic opportunity for people to get a first-hand look at the fact that getting these men out of the paint, um, holding men accountable for their actions and for their bad behavior, for their crimes, does not end the world. And it does not end the good work that is being done in the world to make the world better for the rest of us. If anything, it gives us an opportunity, I think, to uplift more people into the powerful positions that these men have previously occupied and committed these crimes or allegedly committed these crimes under the guise of whatever rationalization they've come up with. Right. One other story that came out yesterday was in the Post. seemed to be an old story. got published after a couple months after the interview that was really messed up. You saw this. The, um, so after the Parkland shooting, right, there were 17 people died. Mm-hmm. The students came out forcefully advocating for gun control. Mm-hmm. Uh, trolls would come along and say, well, those are crisis actors. Right. right. These aren't legitimate students. These aren't people with wounds, PTSD, suffering. These are people who right. are just being put up by you know, Democratic operatives to take away people's Second Amendment rights. Absolutely. And, you know, this is not new. The idea of crisis actors being used to push progressive agenda 
in this country. This is something that was brought up during the civil rights era and during the civil rights movement quite often. Um, we were told, and you would see in different publications and in different writings at that time, that people were trying to spread the idea that black folks were not actually suffering mm -hmm. under Jim Crow laws and that the people who they saw being attacked by dogs or the people who they saw being attacked at lunch counters or doing protests were actually actors hired by progressive members of the government. Wow. And not real people who stepped out to, you know, stand up on their own behalf and on behalf of their people. Wow. So this is a long history. So these imbeciles who were doing mm -hmm. it with Parkland students found their way to Brooklyn because, go figure, there was a woman in Brooklyn whose name was Emma Gonzalez. Who could, who, who, yes. could, who could have guessed? There was actually a woman in Brooklyn named Emma Gonzalez. So she, all of a sudden, was targeted by these trolls. Mm -hmm. She's a 31-year-old Brooklynite, mm -hmm. long reddish hair, glasses, uh, and a chef. A vegan and, chef. A vegan chef. <laughs> and somebody posted something on her Facebook saying, do Americans really fall for it when you talk about being a victim of school shooting in Florida? They go after a woman, you know, who's just who just happens to have the same name as Emma Gonzalez, the, the young girl, woman, 18-year-old, whose head is shaved, who stood up on the oh, National yeah. Mall and had a moment of silence for six minutes and 20 seconds. Mm, I'm trying to think of the right way to say this without just calling uh, people the worst names that I can think of, which is my first inclination. Uh, but my more measured inclination would be to say that there's something really, I think, I think we have to pay attention to things like this and not just make fun of them. And I think we have to pay attention because it seems to me like there is a certain sect of this country who um, feels promised a certain kind of life because they live here and not people who are talking about that they deserve opportunities or that they deserve uh, food or that they deserve shelter. People who believe they um, are entitled to uh, having power mm -hmm. over other people. And learning that they are not actually entitled to that and that the people who they would seek to oppress or subdue will fight back <laughs> when they attempt to, you know, impose their will over those folks is driving them into places of, I think, extreme delusion. And not just delusion, but a menacing need and or attraction to violent behavior. And when those people feel that way, we're all in danger. It's not just women. It's not just Emma Gonzalez. It's not just me. It's not just the people who are targeted directly. We are all in danger when people like this are, you know, free to thrive. And activated. You know, Emma Gonzalez, she was legitimately spooked. We asked mm -hmm. her to come talk to us on the show. She said... I don't want to give any more fuel to this. She's taking the high road. I would have wanted to vent. I'd be furious. Mm -hmm. I'm sure she is. I think, you know, she's worried about the conspiracy theorists coming back up and, you know, being animated again. You know, they live in this alternate universe, and they're calling these, like, false flag operations, right? Mm -hmm. They don't believe that 9-11 happened. They believe it was perpetrated by the CIA. Uh, they don't believe what the media tells them, and sure, you know, but then they go to Alex Jones because they believe what Alex Jones is telling them because he's not the mainstream media. It's the mainstream media that's really trying to dupe us, pull one over on us, and take what's, take what's ours. One final uh, thing we should talk about because it might be coming to a Brooklyn neighborhood sometime soon. Mayor Bill de Blasio has proposed 
four potential sites for heroin injection, a safe supervised heroin injection in the city, one of those sites in Borum Hill in Brooklyn. I don't know if you, you heard about that. I've heard a little bit about it. One of them in Gowanus. Right, in Gowanus, yeah. I'm right on the border of Borum Hill and Gowanus, mm-hmm. uh, which is interesting. There, there isn't one yet in the United States. Uh, mm-hmm. Several cities are looking at the possibility. Canada has them. Uh, Europe has them as well, particularly Holland and Switzerland, where they've actually been quite successful. And in Holland, when I was there not too long ago, I was hearing accounts of people who would go there on their work break, on their lunch break, Mm -hmm. because their addiction was so strong that they would go just to get a sustaining hit, an injection, and then be able to go back to work. And this was keeping these individuals as functioning members of society. They would go and the the heroin was actually provided Mm -hmm. by the government in these sites. And I don't know that that's what's being proposed here. I don't think that would go over. I know a lot of people are going to look at this before it happens. Mm-hmm. But what, I th- what the intention is is to cut down on the overdoses by having supervised injection sites, clean needles, things like that. We can't keep criminalizing people um, and putting them in dangerous situations because they're sick. And this, I suppose, is one solution to that. I am always open to seeing how things like this can go. Um, People are obviously going to be watching it closely. I just hope they get the opportunity to really care for people and hopefully learn something that will help us in this epidemic. Yeah, I think the problem is going to be locating these things because there's, of course, some NIMBY pushback. Nobody wants it in their backyard. Of course. We always hear that. But... We have to take care of each other. It's part of being New Yorkers, I think. Mm. On the show today, lessons in gentrification. We'll see how Brooklyn's version can inform other cities around the world that are experiencing their own version. And a former NFL lineman who was force-fed junk food found his way to veganism. And then to Brooklyn to share his vision of food justice. Don't go away. For years now, Brooklyn has been synonymous with gentrification. But it's a phenomenon happening all across the world, as working-class folks are pushed out of revitalized urban centers from Los Angeles to Lagos, Nigeria. Our friends at City Limits recently ran a series about this process, identifying the lessons to be learned in these far-flung locales from the experiences of Brooklyn. The author of one of these articles is here to talk about those Brooklyn experiences and to help us understand what can be done to mitigate the displacement. Daniel Bates, welcome to 112BK. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. I actually, this conversation is so important to me because Mm -hmm. that G word comes up over and over and over when we talk about Brooklyn. So can you talk to me about how this series ended up in City Limits and how you guys sort of came to that idea? Yeah, so it was originally set up through a website called Hostwriter, which encourages collaboration between freelance journalists. Mm -hmm. And um, I contacted four other journalists around the world and... um, we um, we sort of uh, we we basically collaborated together, and um, I, and I approached Jarrett Murphy at City Limits um, um, initially for sort of some ideas about how to pursue it, and he said, well, why don't I host it? So and it seemed like a good pairing. So in the end, Jarrett hosted it. He came up with a sort of special site on the website, and um, we all fired our copy and our pictures to him, and um, that's how it came about really. So um, like I say, it, it was a, a really good way of collaborating with other people around the world, and it kind of you know meshed with with Jarrett's uh, agenda and city limits, really. Where were those journalists from? 
So we had, um, um, I've got them written down so I don't forget them. So there's Purple Crystal Romero in Manila, as Wasera and Nungiri in Nairobi, Linus Una in Lagos, and Dalen Paul in Johannesburg. Mm. And um, the reason I wanted to work with these guys is because um, you often read stories about gentrification in London, Berlin, New York. And, yes. and, and I, you don't hear about it so much from places like, like this. And obviously it's going on. And I think one of the interesting things about the project was getting their perspective and seeing how the same forces and the same dynamics are playing out in places that you don't hear about it so much. So. Are we really the paragon of gentrification here in Brooklyn? Because it sort of seems that way, but also we're in Brooklyn. So that's what we're hearing about all the time. Sure, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think there's a degree of, as always in New York, I think there's a degree of um, you know, self-importance. People mm -hmm. think that we are the, the only place this is happening. But having said that, I think New York really you know, is um, you know, highly professional at gentrification. You know? mm -hmm. we, I mean, it's, uh, it's, I think um, the, the, the sort of forces and the things that have, uh, are pushing it have, have been existing here for, for a lot longer than other places and are far more refined and far more um, you know, um, 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 effective what they do than mm -hmm. in somewhere, say, like Johannesburg, where gentrification hasn't been an issue for quite so long. So right. I just think it's, um, it's, been, it's far more entrenched here than, mm -hmm. the, than elsewhere. So I think that is fair to say. What are some of those forces? Um, I think it's just, uh, just you know, it's just money, the real estate industry, mm. and, and power. Uh, I think here it's, um, it's the the relationships between, um, yeah, politicians and the real estate industry. That's really what drives it. Um, um, Celia Weaver, she's the executive director of New York Communities for Change. She's one of the people I spoke to for the piece. Her advice, if you really want to understand um, what's going on, is just follow the money. You know, mm. see who's giving money to who. See you know, which projects are being approved, see the relationships and just follow the money and then you'll see where, um, where, the, where the influence is coming from and where it's going. Can I ask, you know, there's something that I've noticed happening recently and this is sort of um, even maybe even a personal question, mm. but I see a lot of people now buying houses through LLCs. Does that affect gentrification at all? I think uh, the reason I think it, it doesn't necessarily, it probably encourages it. I mean, I think mm -hmm. the, the thing about LLCs, and I know this through my work doing investigations as a reporter, is mm -hmm. that it, it, there's two things. One, it protects you against legal liability, and mm -hmm. two, it um, disguises your identity. It makes you right. harder to work out who you are. So if you're a foreign buyer and you want to invest in New York, but you don't want anyone to know who you are, then you set up an LLC and you use that to buy um, to right. buy the property. So uh, I think the relaxed laws about LLCs and the secrecy they give you make it easier for foreign buyers. And this is one of the points that was made to me during the article that um, in New York, uh, housing campaigners didn't really realize, didn't anticipate the influx of foreign money. They didn't anticipate right. the how the global economy would would open up and money would pour into New mm. York. Um, so I think that's that's um, you know that's all wrapped up in that. So. What can you tell me about the impact globalization? Because you know when you talk about these global forces coming in and people mm. not expecting the global money, even as we <laughs> mm. become a much more much much more global space, like every day, I feel like to be perfectly honest. Um, but how is it affecting the poorest people? in either you know developing or underdeveloped places well i think you uh you look at east new york for example right. I, I did a piece um a year or so ago now and it's crazy to think that um 
private equity companies and pension funds are actually buying up properties in East New York, mm-hmm. um, which which is mind-boggling if you think about it. Um, right. um, but the I mean the effect is it's. Uh, uh, demand goes up. Uh, uh, there's more pressure on landlords to raise rents. Um, uh, the landlords are more tempted to persuade or force out people who are in sort of public housing or Section 8 housing um, or rent control departments. Uh, and um, it, people who are living there generally get forced further and further out. But it, it just creates incentives for landlords to either make the apartments uninhabitable or use shady things to kind of push right. people out. So right. I think I think the the simple pressure of the demand the extra demand on the housing stock and we, there isn't very much in New York creates all kinds of incentives for landlords to do the wrong thing. So how did these other places compare to New York mm. in that regard? Mm. Well, I think um the way we the way that I did the project I we sort of did our report slightly differently. So right. um, the dispatches from uh, the four other places were sort of specific things, specific projects. Um, yeah, they all really stand on their own. Yeah, that's really right. Well. And and what what I did with New York is I kind of did a, a sort of a series of interviews with experts to mm-hmm. sort of um, do kind of lessons learned because I think for readers of City Limits the. Uh, issues that came up in the individual reports were things that were quite familiar to them. So we wanted to do something a little different with with my report. And right. you know what we did with that, we we learned it's very very interesting speaking to people who've been dealing with this for 30, 40 years. Mm-hmm. And the kinds of things which they were recommending was, you know, the the number one um, recommendations I got was own the land, um, mm-hmm. which was quite surprising. You know, there's me thinking that it's all about you know protests or act, act, being an activist or whatever. But time and time again, the message I got was you have to own the land. Um, you know, I was told that by someone in, uh, who was a business leader in Harlem, a uh, long-term activist. Uh, so the NGOs or um, housing associations essentially have to function like a property speculator and outbid other people in order to own the land for affordable housing. That was wow. that was one of the interesting things. Uh, the second thing was just good old-fashioned organizing. You know, mm-hmm. find people who aren't driven by ego. Um, right. You know, just just get them in positions of power and. Um, you know, make sure they represent you well. So, you know, th- those kind of lessons, and and um, also I think a very important lesson is to is to think about it in terms of the time scale. Um, mm-hmm. We often think about it uh, development in terms of months or years, but developers right. are thinking decades from now. Right. They have so many more advantages. So. You have to think big. Um, if you're going to come up with a strategy to fight gentrification, you have to think very, very long term. So those were the key lessons that kind of came out of, of the, the story that I did. And what do you say to people who are gentrifiers? Because I have, you know, so many of the, I work in media, so many of the people who I work with are transplants and people who live in neighborhoods where they like moved there because when they got here they were making very little money and then they maybe rose up the ranks and now they're making more money but they love their neighborhood and they want to stay in this neighborhood and it's like but how how do I justify my place here and am I is is my presence here actually like you know like you don't want to say it but it's as my presence here leading to gentrification and to the displacement of my neighbors yeah it's very difficult um you know on a personal level i find myself in exactly the same situation you know Mm -hmm. like i I live in flatbush Uh, most of my neighbors are me too yeah most of my neighbors are haitians um Mm -hmm. they've been there in rent control departments for 20 30 years Mm -hmm. um and yeah it's it's uncomfortable but i think um 
I think uh, you you be a human about it. Be you know mm -hmm. get to know your neighbours. You know be right. be a nice person. Um, you know offer to help them out. Um, take some time for them. Um, you know invest in your building. Invest in your community. Don't just be someone who goes in and out. I mean I think that's just being a good neighbour. And I think right. if you if you're really really interested, get involved with the community board. You know mm -hmm. I mean go along to zoning meetings. I mean if you really want to see the chalk face of gentrification in New York, it's it's community board and zoning meetings. Like mm -hmm. that is like you will see it right there. And um, if if you're interested and you feel like this is something which is important to you. Go and do that. Get involved. You know, get involved in community organizing. You know, I mean, I think you know, if you approach it with sincerity and you know, like a human being and with sympathy and awareness of what's going on, I, I, I think. Um, and the other thing is, is that as was explained to me when I was doing the article, I don't think any community is opposed to gentrification. Right. You know, like all kinds of gentrification, as long as it benefits everybody. Yes. You know, so that's the mm -hmm. thing. I think. If there are services, you know, I'm Brenda Edwards Guy, she's a, a, a sort of community activist in, um, in Prospect Lefferts Garden. She was saying to me that she likes the cafes, you know, she likes the places she can go and she doesn't have to go to Park Slope to kind of get those kind of things. But she doesn't like the fact that there's a massive apartment block called the Park Line, like right next to her house, which blots out the sun. Yep. So there's, there's different, you know, that gentrification isn't benefiting everyone, whereas other kinds of things are. So I think that's. You know, I think it's a misconception that gentrification is bad, but it just has to be the right kind of gentrification and improvement of the community. So, well, Thank you so much for being here and for talking to us about this today, Daniel. I sure. appreciate it. Football players know a thing or two about food especially linemen, who average in excess of 300 pounds. But the food is not often the healthiest variety. Fast foods, tons of carbs, lots of protein. It can sicken a man, and it often does, like our next guest who suffered high blood pressure and other ailments from his diet. So he decided he needed to change it. And then he began thinking about other people with unhealthy diets and what he could do to help them. His name is David Carter. He's a football player turned Brooklyn food justice activist, and he recently spoke with producer Ross Tuttle about it. Here's that conversation. So, David, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, so you're telling me um, you grew up in South Central L.A. Can you tell me a little bit about your childhood? How did you get started in football? Uh, so uh, my brother and I both played sports growing up, and we played Pop Warner together and, you know, going all the way up to high school. Uh, played for Crenshaw High School Pop Warner football team, and then... Um, and, you know, like, just in Los Angeles, went to uh, college, went to UCLA, played football there. Right. My brother went to Fresno, mm -hmm. played football there. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, yeah, went to the league from there. And, mm -hmm. yeah, so. So you have, the, you have the stature for it. For those who are, some people are listening to this show, not watching, you're about six. Six, six. Six, six? Yeah. All right. Uh, and then I guess when you were playing football, you were a lot heftier. Yeah, I was, uh, I was about 320 pounds. That was my heaviest. I was. Wow, what was your position? I played nose tackle. Nose tackle. So that's like the heaviest position on the line. Oh you got to go up against two guys every time. So uh -huh. you need that extra weight to, to hold it down. So nose tackle is defense. Yeah, defense. And you're the guy who's got to, you know, break down either when the running backs come through they're trying to squash you yeah. try to get to the quarterback for the sack yeah well the hardest that and then the hardest part of the nose tackle is you're going up against two three hundred plus pound uh, offensive linemen who are just trying to 
mm -hmm. like lift you up or you know right. hit you in the rear one's taking your knees out and the other one's trying to hold you up uh -huh. so yeah so I remember I did wrestling when I was in high school and the key was always to make weight right to you know be as big and almost like almost you know push the envelope of your weight class and so sometimes you'd have to sweat and lose weight, but it's the opposite with this. You've got to be as big as possible when you're being recruited, right? And you want to look big when they're recruiting you. So when you were being recruited out of college, you were how many pounds? I was about 300, 305 uh -huh. out of college. And right. then uh, I, I maintained that weight up until, uh, actually, when I went vegan, I went plant-based. And then I lost 40 pounds, and then I put the weight back on and actually put on an additional 20 pounds, 15 to 20 pounds, uh -huh. and I was 320 pounds as a vegan. Wow. So, yeah, that's how that. Well, I want to I talk to that switch, uh, talk about that switch in a second. Um, but so when you, were, when you were trying to keep this weight on, I mean, what kind of, before you went vegan, what kind of diet did you have? Man, I was just eating whatever. <laughs> like, I thought I was eating, I was, eat, I was eating, you know, like, steaks all the time, potatoes, milkshakes in the middle of the night, mm -hmm. like, you know, to, to put weight on, because I would, I played for the Arizona Cardinals, and it's like 120 degrees mm -hmm. in the summertime, and you're practicing, wow. you lose 15 pounds water weight, or 20 pounds, you know, you just, it's crazy, like, literally, wow. you're taking IV bags to the arm to put the water back in your body, uh -huh. but, uh, and so that constant working out, you're, you, you lose that weight, so mm -hmm. drinking milkshakes or steak, you know, chicken, all that stuff, as much as I just could. Just like platters of food just yeah. put in front of you after right. after a day of practice or a game. Okay. I mean, were you thinking as you're doing this about the health consequences, about the, you know, farther-reaching mm -hmm. impacts of, of having this kind of diet, what it does for you, what it does for the planet? Yeah, so, no, not, not really. So, I thought that I was eating, I was actually, when I was playing, I was like, before I went vegan, a lot of players would be like, man, you have all these vegetables and stuff, or, you know, like, you eat a lot of vegetables, or, you know, you have, you take a lot of, like, supplements or stuff like that, and I was just like, like, vitamins, and then they're like, but. Other, my, player, other players didn't do that. I mean, no, they, they didn't, they're not necessarily eating, like, more vegetables, mm -hmm. you know, they weren't, like, in, and they weren't doing, like, you know, glucosamine, which is, like, for joints and sure. stuff like that, and. They were, uh, you know, just eating like In-N-Out or, or you know, McDonald's, Burger King, Jack in the Box after sure. practice. I don't and know how many people here will be familiar with In-N-Out, but it's the fast food joint in, on the West in Coast. The, on the West Coast, yeah. right? So we get three pieces and a biscuit on the way to the game, mm. and that's what we're eating, you know, try, you know, or a big thing of spaghetti or mm. whatever fried foods, right. and that's just the norm, mm. you know, because you, you're trying to get as big as you can and keep your weight on, right. and but it's not, it's nowhere near healthy at all. When did you when did you then decide to become a vegan and when did you start thinking more about food justice issues and the access to healthy food for people especially in, in inner cities? Uh, it's, it's, so it, first it's a long story. So it goes give, first, me, the, I, give me the short version. I'm going to give you the short. First it started with me cuz I had to change my diet first. I had to change my lifestyle and I did that because I was playing football and I was 23 but I was dealing with old man illnesses, right? Like I had, I was 23, but I was dealing with high blood pressure. I had tendonitis to the point where I couldn't do push-ups or even push myself out the bathtub or stuff wow. like that. Felt like somebody was taking a knife to my elbows and just twisting it. And so I had to change my life, my lifestyle. I watched a documentary. My my ex-wife was vegan, and she still is vegan. But she, you know, convinced me to watch this documentary, Forks Over Knives, on Netflix, and it just 
showed me how I was actually contributing to my old man illnesses that I was talking about that had me taking anti-inflammatories, painkillers, uh, high blood pressure medication at the tender age of 23. Wow. You know, and in the NFL, I'm thinking I'm like a invincible, like I'm a, yeah. I'm a, you know, I'm, right? Because you know, point one, point zero one four of the people that try out for football or play football actually make it to the NFL, mm -hmm. and you know, so. I'm just out there eating what I eating to, to stay big and to stay strong, and so I switched that. I switched my lifestyle, went vegan, um, and then I started uh, speaking about you know you don't have to take a life to gain muscle. You don't basically you don't have to eat meat to gain muscle. You know you can eat like an elephant or or a gorilla and and get big because they're biggest they're strong as hell. Yeah. You know, so. Um, but somebody stood up and was like, one time I was speaking, because I speak at universities across the country. And this is while you were still in the NFL? Yeah, this is, well, I know, I retired at that okay. point. So this is, somebody stood up and was like, yo, you know, like, this is all fine and dandy that, you know, you could, that you can eat this way and eat healthy and eat these, these vegetables and, and fruits and vegetables and all that, but we don't even have access to this kind of food. You know, I live in the hood. You know, like, where am I supposed to eat? The, where am I supposed to eat vegan at? Mm -hmm. You know, I don't have no vegan restaurants where I live. So that you, you connected to that, right? From it, your from your background, right? Because I'm from South Central, and it just totally. I just realized it's like, man, like I'm completely, just you know, got you know, was you know, got a part of the privilege of being in the NFL, right. and 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 just completely like, wow, I have to go back mm -hmm. and touch my roots and be like, and, and, and speak to what I grew up in. Right, because it's like Tom Brady's got a personal chef, and he talks so much about his diet and how pristine it is, and he just won't touch certain things. Exactly. And it's like, God, if we could all live like that. Yeah, that would be beautiful, you know, mm -hmm. and you have the bread to do that, you can do it. Right. But, you know, health isn't accessible to everyone. You know, it's, it's, it's a privilege. Veganism is, is known as, you know, a privileged way of living, a privileged way of eating because you can only find organic fruits and vegetables at the Whole Foods or, you know, the, the, the really nice grocery stores and everything else is like, oh, your fruit is old. If you have fruit in the hood, if you have fruits and vegetables, there's flies and shit flying around it or it's like on its way out, about to be, you know, about to start growing mold and stuff or, or there's no fruits and vegetables at all. So you moved to Brooklyn, and now you're working to try to, to try to do something about this issue. Tell me about that. Yeah, so I'm putting. So I've been doing a, a bunch of things out here in Brooklyn, and it's, it's my home now. I love it. But uh, I'm putting on a music festival at Prospect Park, and with uh, Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams, and also with Prospect Park, we're putting. Uh, we're that's where we're hosting it at on August 18th mm -hmm. of this year, 2018, and we'll also be working with. Uh, with, you got a list of sponsors, yeah, right? List of sponsors, right? Yeah. So, so tell me who they are. So we're working with Eric, uh, with Everard Finley, who's a he's an international brand ambassador for Grow NYC, mm -hmm. and the, he's on the chair. He's the chair of communications mm -hmm. for that as well. So we're blessed to be working with them. You know, with all the farmers markets here in New York City mm -hmm. to help bring you know food ac access to healthy foods to mm -hmm. people in food deserts or in, in food swamps. Right, as food as swamps. I, I hadn't heard of food swamps. Yeah, bro. It's like you know, there's food there, but it's not the healthiest food. Ah, you know, I see. You got, All right, swampy you got, food. I mean, you've been around Brooklyn, I'm sure, and seen some of those some of those food swamps and food deserts. Yeah, most definitely. Uh, there won't be a grocery store anywhere in sight, but there will be four 
fast food restaurants right. and three liquor stores on the one corner. I mean, yeah, there's like one intersection I know in a certain part of Brooklyn where I think it's got like, you know, different fried chicken stores like on, on you know, Caddy Corner from right. each other. And it's like, come on, man, like, yeah. ain't nobody eating that much fried chicken. But <laughs> apparently they are, right? Because yeah. that's all they have available to them in their community. Yeah. So you eat what you have, what's, what's there. How do we encourage, you know, some of these like the Whole Foods to, you know. To go into these communities. Yeah, to go into these communities. So. Well, I think the better question is like, how did we have, in the, how did we get into this situation to begin with, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and that's like how, like the, like I was telling you about food deserts and food swamps, mm -hmm. and how did we get there? And that that all started, you know, because it's a system. You know, somebody built these, somebody put the, somebody geographically placed these. Mm -hmm these food void, you know, these, these void areas, you mm -hmm. know, right. nutritionally void areas throughout the city. Mm -hmm. and, and that all started, actually, that our, the food system, the food swamps are created. The food system that we live in today is created from Jim Crow law. It's right. remnant of Jim Crow law. It's and redlining and, and Red. pushing people out of right. certain, certain neighborhoods and then into neighborhoods that are less desirable that have fewer, um, fewer resources. Exactly. But we still live with this exact same food system mm -hmm. today. They, only, they didn't change anything about the laws mm -hmm. and the ordinances. All they did was just rebrand it. You know, that's what companies do. <laughs> you know, like, they don't want to make too many changes. We're just going to rebrand it and, mm -hmm. and make it look better on the outside. But it's still the same thing. Right. And food is still being, the resources are still being allocated just like they were in, you know, 1910, 1920, 19, when, when racism was so very prevalent. Mm -hmm. And you know, we live in a in a social the social climate today is still an issue today, sure. and you know we just have to you know we have to face these problems that we're that that we never that we didn't get a chance to face then, mm -hmm. and we have a better opportunity to to make changes to these things now. Right. Well, I think it's an, an important mission, and we're happy to have you here in the borough, and hope yeah. we can make some progress on this. It's an important uh, important project. That's the show. Thanks for joining us. Tomorrow we'll be back to talk about child welfare in the city, plus a new media enterprise from some vice veterans who are also opening up a brick-and-mortar museum of pizza. Hope you can join us. Bring pizza. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley C. Ford, and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. Also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Barghi, Ariana Rosas, Naeem Van, Tyrese Hester, Kritzi Roberts, Emily Bogosian, and Sarah Grachowski. It is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer. It is recorded by Eric Hagasak and Antonio M. Rosario. Our theme music was composed and produced by Brad Parker. And our executive producers are Aziz Isham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias.